Lovely to be with you guys today from wherever you're watching this from. We're continuing in our 1 Peter series. It's my joy to bring today's message to you. I love musicals. I love musicals. And my favorite musical of all time is Les Mis. Les Mis is the story of a convict called Jean Valjean. He was uh, imprisoned in the 19th century for stealing a loaf of bread. Spends, uh, spends 19 years hard labor in prison and finally he gets paroled. Lives as a beggar, he's trying to find his way in the world and a bishop takes him in to look after him. This bishop feeds him, clothes him, gives him a place, a place to sleep. And, uh, but it comes a point where Jean Valjean sees some silverware the bishop has put away and he takes it. He takes it and he runs away. Police catch up with him and bring him back to the bishop and they say, we found him. This is the guy who stole your stuff. And he had the gall to say that bishop that you gave it to him. And the bishop looks at Jean Valjean and he looks at the policeman and he says, it's true. It's true. These, silver, these pieces of silver were my gift to him. And he says, Jean Valjean, you left so early in the morning. I didn't have time to give you the two best things, the two silver candlesticks. How could you forget them? And Jean Valjean is completely flawed. He is flabbergasted. In a moment where he thought he was going to be condemned and sent back to prison, he is given grace upon grace and mercy. It floors him and it frees him. And then the priest then says to him, you have been rescued from darkness. Now use this opportunity to become an honest man. And that's what Jean Valjean does. That's the rest of the story of Les Mis. He becomes an honorable man, a respected member of society, a father to an orphan girl. His response to an outrageous act of mercy and grace was to live a different life. And this is what Peter is getting at in our text today. What we are looking at today flows right off the back of, of what we saw last week where we unpack the joy, the wonder, the magnitude of salvation, just the outrageous generosity of God and what he's done to free us from sin. And what Peter's writing today flows right off the back. And the key thing we're going to look at today is that the right response to salvation is a life set apart for the glory of God, The right response to salvation is a life set apart for the glory of God. So if you have your Bibles, join me in 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll look at uh, verse 13 through to the start of chapter 2. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy... So be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God who has raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. 
For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Peter starts with therefore. And as we know, when you see a therefore, you have to think, what's that therefore? And that means that the writer is saying, go back. Go back to the context. Go look at the preceding verses to understand what I'm about to say. Peter's about to launch into an exhortation about what we are to do as we look at the finished work of Christ and how this joy in our salvation, this hope carries us through life, carries us through times of trial. And what he says in essence is this, be holy. Commit every part of your life to the Lord. Set your life apart for holy living in view of God's amazing grace, in view of what you have received. Devote yourself to him. Be holy. So there's three things I want to unpack for us today. We want to look at what is holiness, how can we be holy, and why should we be holy? What is holiness? I wonder if when you think of holiness, probably you might think, oh, it's just doing the right thing. It's, it's not doing bad things. It's doing good things. And that's, that's kind of part of it. There, there is a, a moral element to holiness. But according to Scripture, holiness has a much deeper, much richer meaning. It means being set apart, being separate, being totally other, totally unique. And we can look to the Old Testament for some really clear examples of, of things, of people that can be holy. We can learn that a person can be holy. Scripture in 1 Chronicles talks about Aaron being set apart, being set apart as a priest. Time can be holy. The Sabbath day is set apart as a holy day. A place can be holy. The tabernacle in Exodus and the temple when it was built in Jerusalem, those places were set apart as holy. And a nation, a group of people can be holy. This is what the story of Scripture is all about, that God chose for himself a people, a special possession called Israel, to bring them out from Egypt, out among the nations, to set them apart as devoted to him. But the ultimate example of holiness, the ultimate example of somebody who is completely set apart, completely other, is God himself. He is the picture of perfection. We look at Exodus 15 where Moses writes, Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. Samuel writes in 1 Samuel, God, there is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. I could just fill up the next however long, with scripture after scripture after scripture of all the people who declare the glory and the wonder and the holiness of God. What is difficult for us to grasp in, in our carnal, our earthly mindsets is just how magnificent he is, how set apart he is, how completely different to us he is, how holy he is. 
And Peter quotes from Leviticus 11.14 where God says to Israel, he, this is where he really hits home how holy he is, how he wants Israel and us to relate to him. He says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate, set apart yourselves and be set apart. Be holy because I am holy. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. Peter quotes Leviticus, and then he says to his readers, be like that. Be like God. God is set apart. God is totally unique. God is completely separate, and be like him. And you read that, and you think, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? How on earth can that be? How on earth can I, with my weaknesses, my sin, my, my body that ages, my, my mind that is so, sometimes so hard to bring under control, how on earth can I be holy? Is it even possible? The thing is, if you're a follower of Jesus watching this today, you are holy already. You are Holy, you are set apart. You are totally unique. Right now, God sees you as holy because what he has done through the finished work of Jesus on the cross in that moment of conversion and regeneration, when you set your hope and your faith in Jesus, God said, I'm setting you apart. I'm setting you apart. The moment that debt was atoned for, your sin was removed as far as the east is from the west. So God can't can't look at you and your sin at the same time. In the eyes of God, you are already holy. And so what? So now we need to live up to it. Now we need to lean into it. And that might seem difficult to understand, but, but picture this. I got married on February the 25th, 2017. In a split second, I went from being single, well, unmarried, to becoming a husband. In a moment in the eyes of God, in the eyes of the government, in the eyes of my wife, in the eyes of the witnesses, I became a husband. It's what I am. But I've spent the last six and a half years, every second, every minute, being a husband, learning how to be a husband, growing in it, loving my wife, supporting her, encouraging her, praying for her, living out the actions of what I already am. It is proved in my actions as a husband. A holy life is proved in its actions, in its obedience. How can we be holy? Obedience. 1 Peter 1, he writes, he writes his letter, he says, to God's elect who have been chosen to be obedient to Jesus Christ. In verse 14, Peter calls us now that you are children of obedience which is a way, it's a, it's a Hebraism, a, a, a common saying of the time, basically saying your mother is obedience. And if your mother is obedience, then your prevailing character, the thing that defines you the most, is your obedience. Peter's saying your holiness will be proved in your obedience to the Lord God Almighty as your master, and loving him, obeying him, doing what he says. It's what Jesus says in John 14, 23, anyone who loves me must obey my teaching. Love is proved in obedience. Paul goes on, Peter, not Paul, Peter goes on further to say, be alert and clear-minded in verse 13. He says, with minds that are alert and fully sober, the literal translation there is, gird up the loins of your mind. 
in the time when Peter was writing to, to gird up your loins, people often had long flowing clothes. And when they were about to take action, when they needed kind of everything that was in the way, out of the, out of the way, when they needed to focus, they would gird up their cloak so it's out of the way, so they could run, so they could move, so they could do something. Our translation here, what we would say today is roll up the sleeves of your mind. Like get ready for some work. Get all the things out of the way that are going to slow you down so you are focused, so you are clear in your thinking. This is a temperance. This is a accuracy of thought. This is being clear-headed about our lives, about the way we live, and about the world. Peter says this is really important to be holy. We need to see things clearly. It's what Paul is talking about in Romans 12 too, where he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There is a mental aspect of it here. But Peter says, with this clear, this alert, this sober, this temperate mind, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ returns. Another way of how we can be holy is to, with our clear mind, set our hope on the second coming of Jesus Christ. And when we do this, when we, when we look at, ah, oh, my, my Savior, the one who loves me, who died for me, who redeemed me, is coming back. When we see that this is how the story of this world and of my life ends, that brings a sobriety to how we live. It brings clarity to how we live. It means that our grief in times of suffering and trial is tempered by the hope that and the knowledge that one day all tears will be wiped away. We'll be, as the psalmist says, we'll have eternal pleasures at his right hand and every act of wrongdoing will one day be met by justice. That everything that is unfair that happens now, that there is no justice here, will one day meet justice. We, we means that our hope isn't ultimately on buying a house or having the best retirement or buying any things because we know that those things will perish. And so it means, ah, oh, I see things clearly. Jesus is coming back. Man, I want to invest in the things of the kingdom. I want where my money goes to be things of eternal value. I think it also means we can see our work with greater clarity too. We can see work as a good thing that God gives us to do. But when we see things clearly in the light of Jesus returning, in the light of eternity, we go, actually, my work is not going to complete me. My work isn't the thing that's going to satisfy me. It's a good thing, but it's not the ultimate thing. And so it can save us from chronic overwork or finding your identity in work. Obedience, a clear mind, focus on Jesus. And then he talks about living as a foreigner. Living as a foreigner. In verse 17, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Foreigner here is the same word Peter uses at the start. He addresses his letter to the exiles. And that word means resident alien. And probably the easiest word for us is to think of an ambassador or a sojourner. Have you ever considered your time here, your life here, as being a sojourner, a traveler, someone who is here but doesn't belong here? An ambassador is, is someone who, who leaves their home country, lives in another country, and immerses themselves in the people and the culture, does, does, is there in every way, and yet their allegiance, their home, their belonging is millions of miles away, thousands of miles away. Their home isn't here. And this is what Peter is saying. We live here on earth. 
But we are God's ambassadors to this place. This isn't our home. Our allegiance is with the kingdom of God. And so that means we must live differently. We must live lives that are set apart. When I was at university about 15 years ago, I was going through a time in my faith where I was just trying to be super relevant. I wanted to show people that you know, Christians could be cool. Christians could be, um, I was going to say hip, but I shouldn't say hip. I just said hip. Um, I'm, I'll just stick with cool, hey? But I wanted to show that Christians could be cool. And so um, I just started swearing, just swearing heaps all the time. Just, just, it was, I had an absolute foul mouth and one of my colleagues just pulled a face. Um, words were just foul words pouring out of my mouth. Just something I wanted to try. And I remember this moment where I was out fishing with some uni mates and just this awful talk coming out of my mouth. My friend says to me, he says, Jeremy, you know what I love about you, man, is that you're a Christian, but you're just the same as us. And he meant it as a compliment. But until the day I die, I'm never going to forget the gut punch that I felt in that moment. Just this deep conviction of the Holy Spirit of, wow, I've got this so horribly wrong. I'm called here to represent a kingdom. I'm called to be a representative of the most holy, most wonderful, most loving God. And here's someone telling me, you look just like everybody else. I've never forgotten it. Would someone watching your life say that you were set apart? Could they say, hey, you, you don't look like you're from around here. Your, your values are different. Where are you from? Could they say that as they listen to your words? If they could play your thoughts? If they could, when they, if they watched how you treat other people, how you think about other people, and how you forgive when you are wronged, and where your money goes, and how you treat the poor, and what you watch, and what you listen to, and how much and what you eat and drink, and how you share your possessions. Could someone look at your life, every part of it, and go, that's different. That person is not from here. They must be from a different place. This holiness must pervade every part of our lives. Peter says, be holy in all you do. There is not a square inch of your life that God does not call you, ask you, command you to be set apart. And here's the final thing of how we can be holy. We can do it by feeding on God's word. Peter says in verse 22, now that you have been purified by obeying the truth, and he says you have been born again through the living and enduring word of God. The scriptures give us everything we need for holy living, to be set apart. In uh, chapter 2, verse 2, Peter says, we should be like a newborn baby craving its mother's milk, so should our desire be for the word of God to penetrate, infiltrate our lives. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, how can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It is through reading, meditating on, feeding on the word of God that we are able to live out our holiness and obedience. Why does it matter so much? 
Why does it matter? Jerem, you just said that I'm already holy. Positionally in the eyes of God, I'm already holy. So why does it matter so much what I do if I already am it? Surely I can just do what I want. I'm still holy. Why does it matter how I live into it? It matters because of what it cost to make you holy. For it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. This holiness that is now yours, the set-apartness that is now yours, the grace in which you now stand, the debt that is not yours to pay, the sin that no longer belongs to you, the guilt that is no longer yours to bear, didn't come about because somebody paid enough money for you to be free. But because you were bought at the infinite cost of God's only Son. Paul writes to the Corinthians, you are no longer your own because you have been bought with a price. And Peter explains this by returning to the Old Testament sacrificial system where a lamb was sacrificed to atone for sin. Peter talks about a lamb without blemish. It says Jesus is that lamb without blemish. And in the Old Testament, the Mosaic rule, to be atoned from sin, you would have to take a pure white male lamb and sacrifice it to atone for your sin. That, that perfectly white lamb was a, a sign of absolute purity and it was a, a, a sign of, of Jesus, of the Messiah to come. He was called the Lamb of God. He was the only one who lived a life of absolute moral integrity and perfection because he was completely surrendered to the Father. Jesus didn't live a holy life because he was somehow um, supernaturally empowered to do it. He did it in his human nature because he was, gave his life entirely in surrender to God. Jesus wasn't liable to pay for his sins any more than this lamb is liable to pay for mine. So I was reflecting on this and I, I came across this picture of a lamb and I thought, if someone was said to me, Jerem, it's either you or this lamb. This lamb needs to die to pay for your sins. I would say, well, why? What has it done? It doesn't deserve to die. It hasn't done anything. That's the point. It's what it costs us. It's what it costs. Sorry, it's what it costs God. He didn't do anything. Jesus didn't do anything. He was perfect in every way. And it cost his life to redeem us from our sin. He became our substitute, the righteous for the unrighteous. So what is the response to such a sacrifice? What is the response to such a lavish, outrageous gift of mercy and grace? It's exactly what Jean Valjean did. Set your life apart as an act of reverence and gratitude. You set your life apart. You choose to live differently based on the magnitude of what you've received. True devotion to God must be proved and holy living. It must be proved in holy living. I want to finish with a quick passage from Titus 3, which I think wraps up what we've been talking about. Peter writes to Titus and says, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, 
He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. In this beautiful Trinitarian passage, it shows Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together to bring us to salvation, to make us holy. The Father, because of his great mercy, saved us. And he renews us by his Holy Spirit, who he sends through Jesus. You can live a holy life. You can live into your already holiness, not by gritting your teeth, not by just trying harder, not by pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, but by relying on the power of the Holy Spirit who is in you, willing you forward, urging you on to live out what you already have. Are you holy? Yes. Are you living it out? That's up to you and God. And I think after a message like this, when we look at holiness of God, we must respond. We must reflect. There is no one listening to my voice right now who has 100% of their life totally set apart from God. And I believe God wants to speak to people today. And he wants to point things out and say, this is an area where you aren't totally set apart for me. This is an area of your life that you are keeping private and that you say, this part doesn't belong to him. I'm not letting God look here. And he wants to touch on that today. And so we're just going to leave some time now. And I want you to meditate for a minute or so on Psalm 119, verse 9 to 11, where David prays, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let me pray and then we'll take a moment. Holy God, we love you and we thank you for setting us apart. Lord, I pray by your spirit now, would you just minister so clearly and so accurately to our hearts. Show us, Lord, where there is an offensive way in us where our life isn't totally surrendered to you and help us to open that up and give our lives totally afresh to you again. God, make us holy and help us to live into it, we pray in Jesus' name.